All right, I would invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 19 this evening, the title of the sermon, A Patient Plea. One of the characteristics of the Lord, in a couple of weeks we're going to be looking at the Lord's love. What I'm excited about as I've gotten into Jeremiah is how often thus far I've been able to focus in on the character, on the positive characteristics of the Lord. Uh, It is one of the blessings of preaching through prophecy. Um, that though, there, though there, there's certainly judgment uh, in prophecy, uh, though there's certainly judgment in the prophets, is what I mean by that in prophecy here. Though, though the prophets are full of judgment, the prophets are, are just chock full of the love and the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of the Lord. And we're going to see it. We're going to begin seeing it this evening. We're going to see it in a couple of weeks again. So there's going to be a little bit of, uh, of a roller coaster, if you will. I hope it's not of your emotions, perhaps of our spirits a little bit, as, as one week we're going to be really uh, um, perhaps grieved in our spirits as we hear of the rebellion of, of, of the people. And then in another week it's going to be uh, recognizing the, the goodness of the Lord. And, and we'll, we'll be going back and forth, and sometimes, as in this sermon, in the same message. We'll see a lot of both. Uh, This message, the timing of the Lord is just wonderful and perfect. What we're going to be looking at this evening corresponds very closely to what we talked about this morning. Uh, We're going to see a lot of overlapping characteristics, overlapping concepts. Uh, And and while I I certainly don't want it to be repetitive, it won't be in the sense that we're in a brand new passage in an entirely different context within which to see many of the same lessons. So God is gentle, God is patient. And tonight we're going to see him pleading with his people. God has a hammer, make no mistake. But he doesn't default to using that hammer. God is patient. And tonight we'll see his patient pleas begin. God is just. He is angry at sin every day. We know these things, but he is kind. So we read in Psalm 18, verse 35. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. David thinks up, uh, excuse me, he thinks upon the Lord's goodness here. And as he thinks upon the Lord's goodness, his, and by that God's humility, his meekness, his condescension, his gentleness toward him, he remarks that the Lord in gentleness had exalted David to make him great. The idea is not that David has been made great at the expense of the Lord, that the Lord has been minimized and David has been ma- uh, exalted, but rather that the Lord has condescended to bless David with greatness all his own that is in no way in competition with the Lord's greatness, and he calls this the Lord's gentleness or goodness, his meekness, his humility unto him. We're going to study just such a mark of God's greatness this evening, that in God's greatness He is gentle toward Israel. Last time we were together, we remarked at God's proclamation of sure and swift judgment. This week, what we will find is that when judgment comes, it will not be because God did not give the nation a chance to repent. It will not be because God was not patient and loving and gentle with His people, but it will be because Though he was gentle and patient and loving and merciful, his people simply would not hear it. Quite the opposite, that though God was good, his nation rejected him anyway. So we begin in verse 1 of Jeremiah 2. In verses 1 through 3, in fact, where the Bible says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, 
saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thy espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. God begins with a nostalgic remembrance, as it were, of former days. Specifically the days when they were in the wilderness, when Israel was in the wilderness, having been delivered from Egypt. In those days, they followed the Lord implicitly, being led by fire and by cloud, being fed by the manna which they woke up to every morning. They were wholly dependent upon the Lord and quite, quite frankly, they, they, they thrived in it. Now, there were times where contingencies of the people struggled. But for those years, they relied upon the Lord. They held on to Him heavily. They listened to the Lord's prophet Moses and they obeyed His commands. To this end, the Lord defended them and He cared for them as He desired to do. There was no enemy that could stand before the people. They would fall as God had promised they would fall. God had taken care of them. God had protected them. So God remembers what He calls in the nation of Israel and in their context, the kindness of their youth. That word kindness also meaning goodness or faithfulness. It speaks of the obedience and the love that they had for the Lord, that they were faithful to Him as He loved them. They loved Him. He says He remembers the love of their espousals. An espousal is the time between when a person is betrothed and when they actually officially get married. We might equate it today to the time of engagement, between the moment of engagement and between the point where the marriage actually takes place. That's the espousal period, as it were. More or less in Hebrew culture, the espousal was a time when they were married. It was just not yet formalized. It was certainly more, more of a formal agreement than what we might call engagement today. One could not simply end an espousal the way a person can simply end an engagement today. A bill of divorcement was still necessary even in that espousal time. During the time when the nation was in the wilderness, God calls it this time of espousal following what we might call the betrothal of the Red Sea. The wedding of the covenant of Sinai would be on the other end of this. God remembers the love that the nation had. So on the one side, the betrothal, the Red Sea. On the other side would be Sinai. And that time in between, he says, I remember that love, that goodness, that faithfulness. It's what God has always wanted. It's what he has created us for, and he desires that we love him. He longs for our love, but he has never forced our love, never demanded our love. God thinks back upon a time in Israel's history and he has a question for the nation in verses 4 and 5. And his question is this. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? We'll get to the question in just a moment. Notice how he directs the question and unto whom he directs the question. He says, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. We often within prophecy will see the name of Jacob and Israel used interchangeably. And I'd like for us to take note of this fact that both Jacob and Israel are used here. 
Sometimes they're not used necessarily interchangeably in this sense. We'll talk about it in a moment. When God uses Jacob, Jacob was the pre-covenant name of Israel, right? He is highlighting something about the character of the nation at that time. Perhaps two things. Number one being the nature that Jacob had prior to being renamed Israel. And number two, the bloodline of Israel, which is through the bloodline of Jacob. I'll, I'll make this more clear in just a moment. Israel is the covenant name of Jacob, given to him on the night that he returned from Haran with his wife, wives, and 12 children, and entered back into the land of Canaan. He had been away for some 20 years at that point, having fled the land after he deceived his father and stole his brother Esau's birthright, if you recall the, the account. He returned into the land and he wrestled with the Lord on that night. And in that account, we read this in Genesis 32, verses 24 through 28. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled with a man, uh, there wrestled a man with him, excuse me, until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. So that when the man that Jacob was wrestling with saw that the man prevailed not against Jacob, the man touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, is the he's there. And, and Jacob's, uh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, that would be the man speaking to Jacob, for the day breaketh. And Jacob, he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. So here... We find later that Jacob acknowledges that he wrestled with the Lord <laughs> and he prevailed. This being symbolic of the idea that Jacob desired this blessing. Jacob wanted the blessing. He sought for the blessing. He desired the blessing and he got the blessing of the Lord. It was Esau's by birthright. The birthright and the blessing, they were both Esau's. But Esau profaned his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. Jacob wanted it. He pursued it. And in faith, he got it. God changes his name here to Israel. Because as a prince, he had power with God and with men. Thus, we understand that Jacob is his given name, his pre-covenant name, his blood name, his birth name. Israel is his covenant name, the name that God had given to him. The children he bore, the children of Jacob, would be renamed the children of Israel by covenant. They were the children of Jacob by birth. They were the children of Israel by covenant when the Lord covenanted with the nation. The twelve families of Jacob entering into the covenant as a nation, specifically at Sinai. To this end, there is some measure of significance when we find God used the name Jacob to designate his people rather than Israel. Emphasizing, as I mentioned, one of two things. Not always both, but at least one of two things. First, that the nation is not living up to their covenant name. Sometimes God calls them Jacob because they're not acting like Israel. They're acting like Jacob. Jacob is a name that generally means deceiver, supplanter. That's what he was. He was not a very moral man. He was not a very good man. Though he had faith, 
God changed his name to Israel, and God often uses the name Jacob in prophecy when he's attempting to highlight that the nation is not living up to their covenant. But second, there is also an emphasis upon the bloodline here. It's not always that they're not living up to their covenant. It might very well be a bloodline issue that God is emphasizing that he's talking about the lineage of Jacob. He's not talking about the spiritual aspect. He's talking about the physical aspect. And both these are important concepts to remember. The first, because it gives us insight into how God views the nation as the time. God's looking at the nation and he's rebuking them and saying, look, you're not living up to your covenant. You're Jacob. You're not Israel. The second, because it reminds us that the promises of God, the promises which God makes in these prophecies, are not implicitly promises to the church. They're promises to the nation of Israel. The church has no part in the covenants of God in regard to the promises of the bloodline of Jacob, the the physical promises of God to Israel. Rather, the church shares with Israel the promises of the spiritual. The spiritual promises made to Abraham, made to Isaac, made to Israel. The spiritual promises of Messiah, we are part and parcel to those. We have been, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 11, grafted into the olive tree of God's election. But we are not the nation, the bloodline of Jacob. And when you see so many of the promises, the promises of of the end times, the promises of the kingdom given not to Israel but to Jacob, that should cause you to perk your ears. I can give a pretty solid case for why the church can be called Israel. In fact, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. I cannot give a solid case as to why I should inherit the promises of Jacob. Jacob is not his covenant name. Jacob is his blood name. Why is God making promises to Jacob? Because God's promising it to the nation. Because God's promising it to the people. Because God's promising it to the the lineage. So God asks them, what has changed? What iniquity has been found in me? that the subsequent generations of Israel saw fit not to show me the love and kindness that the first generation did. Why have your fathers walked in vanity, in emptiness, rather than in the promises of God unto them? Why have they thus become empty themselves? It's not uncommon by any means for God to ask questions. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it with Jesus in the New Testament. All the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve had partaken of the fruit of the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they hide themselves when, when God comes to walk in the cool of the day, and he says to them, where art thou? God knows where they are. And then he says, what hast thou done? God knows what they've done. And then he says, Hast thou eaten of the fruit of which I told you thou shalt not surely eat? He knows that they have. God is not asking because he needs information. God is asking because he is seeking to draw truth out of the mouth of the offender. It's an opportunity to confess. It's an opportunity to acknowledge. It's an opportunity for God to draw these men and women to a place where they acknowledge their state to draw out of them, out of the mouth of, out of their own mouths, their condition. 
So we find God ask a question of the nation here, of Jacob, of Israel. What iniquity has been found in me? See, we talked about it this morning. The idea of distance between us and God. And we established, and we'll establish it again this evening, that when you feel distance between God, it's not God that has moved, right? And yet God asks here, there's something between me and you, Israel. What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong that your fathers have seen fit to wander from my precepts? Well, the obvious answer is nothing, right? God does not fail. God cannot fail. God will not fail. Any failure in any part is always on the side of me, not on the side of God. And this is not the only time God would ask such a question of his people. We find a similar instance in Micah chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. My apologies on the screen. It says Micah 3, 3 and 4. But it's Micah 6, 3 and 4. God asks, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses and Aaron and Miriam. In Micah, we find almost a challenge here. God says, testify against me if you can. And indeed, none can. For where God's promises fail to become a reality, it's never because God failed nor because God's promise failed, but only because we have failed to position ourselves for them. So God says that they've walked away after vanity, after emptiness, and this does not necessarily imply that they were not giving him lip service, for indeed emptiness has nothing to do with the external religious trappings that we're involved in, does it? Everything to do with the heart that undergirds those externalities. So God says to his people, testify against me if you can. Tell me where I've gone wrong that you have ceased to follow me. Isaiah 29, 13. Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their hearts from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Isaiah would testify We see in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. And they come unto thee as a people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Our Lord would say as much as well in the days of his ministry on the earth, stating to the religious leaders in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, Ye hypocrites, well did Esaias prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They walk in vanity. They have become vain. And God asks them, what offense have I committed? What have I done? He continues then in verses 6 and 7. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The results of their vanity, 
They didn't regard the Lord. Once they had received from him the land, they pursued their own pleasures. God had given them a plentiful land. He had blessed them with abundance. They had entered into the land and they had defiled the land. They made themselves the Lord's heritage and abomination. The picture is likened perhaps into a man who blesses his child in an unusual way. And he gives his child every opportunity to succeed. He buys it for his child a house and he furnishes that house and he gives everything that, that his son will need to get started. And he allows his son to enter into this house and to live in this house. And when the father returns, he finds everything destroyed. The house is in disrepair. The furnishing is in ruins. And to see that for all of the blessings that he had poured upon his child, the child had abused and disregarded them rather than seeing them as a gift to be cherished. That's the idea here. God says, I gave you everything. I positioned you perfectly and you defiled it. You made my heritage an abomination. God brings another charge before them in verse 8. He says, The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. We'll find as we continue throughout the book that the Lord places a very heavy burden of accountability upon these three groups, who we would rightly call the spiritual leaders in Israel. He speaks of the priests, he speaks of the pastors, and he speaks of the prophets. First, the priests, priests, those who were charged with teaching the people, those who were charged with knowing the law and being the mediator between God and the people, who never once stopped to ask when the land was made an abomination, who never stopped to ask when the, pe- when, when, when the people began to experience plagues and famines and pestilence, the very things that God promised he would not do, they never stopped to ask why. As a matter of fact, they didn't even know the law well enough to tell the people, this is because you rebelled against the Lord. The priests had failed. They had never stopped to consider how it was that the Lord's blessings were to be received. Though they handled the law, they never took time to know the, the fullness of the law, much less the one who had given it. And as we'll find later in the book, they glory in themselves. Whereas the glory, if any man is to be to glory, should be in the Lord alone. Indeed, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The priests never stopped to know the Lord. They never stopped to wonder why things were wrong. Instead, they went after Baal. They went after the false gods. The second group mentioned here is the pastors. This word, just like in the New Testament, is simply a word for shepherd, a tender of the flock. The priests were to mediate between God and man, taking care to observe the law. The pastors were to teach the people the law of the Lord, taking care to keep the people in the love of God. But the pastors have instead transgressed against the Lord. They have rebelled against the Lord and led others into the same. We'll hear much more about the pastors throughout the book. The final offending group is the prophets. Those who would be called by the Lord to deliver the message of the Lord unto the people. Those who were the direct line between God and the people. God says they prophesied by Baal. They were no prophets at all. They prophesied by Baal. They were false prophets by the false gods of the land rather than the Lord. 
Thus we find that the spiritual leaders of the day were derelict in their responsibility. They had forsaken the Lord so that there was none left to call the nation back. And when there was someone left to call the nation back, say a man named Jeremiah, they saw him as an extremist. They rejected him as a lone voice in a sea of, uh, of more reasonable spiritual leaders. That this man is a, claims to be a spiritual leader, thus saith the Lord. But so does this man and this man and this man and this man. And these pastors and these prophets and these priests, they all with one accord say, who cares? It doesn't matter. We're fine with God. And then there's this one man that says, no, you absolutely are not. And we'll just stick to all of those people. Thus the pastors and the priests and the false prophets become not only a hindrance in their dereliction, but they become by default a hindrance to the actual truth of God's word. We see this in our age too, do we not? A man opens the Bible and he says, thus saith the Lord. And a person says, that's interesting. And then they go to pop culture Christianity and they find some pastor and another pastor and another pastor who says, no, don't worry about that. And the very fact that these pastors are telling them not to worry about the Bible dulls their sensibilities to the realities of thus saith the Lord as it's, as it's given in the word of God. So what does God do with these people who have wandered and these leaders who have wandered? He destroys them, right? He doesn't. Notice verse 9. I love this verse. Wherefore, he says, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead, grapple, to strive, to make a case, to make the case. God says this. He asks him, who's wandered? Well, Israel is obviously going to know the answer to that. It hasn't been you, Lord. So it's me. And God says, you've not listened, but I'm going to keep reasoning with you. I'm going to keep grappling with you. I'm going to keep contending. I am going to keep making my case that I love you and that you should love me back. The idea is similar to one that God gives through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. God says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says, reason with me. Come back to me. Do that which is reasonable. Do that which is in your best interest. And though your sin be as scarlet, I will make it as snow. Though it be red like crimson, it will be white as wool. The idea is that serving the Lord and pursuing his precepts is a reasonable thing. To we who love the Lord and know the Lord we must understand that what God asks of us is entirely reasonable. And not only is it entirely reasonable, but it is for our best good, not just in this life, but in the life that is to come. God is not seeking to strip anything away from you as he asks you to serve him in purity and in righteousness and in truth. He is seeking only to give you something so much better. Let us reason together. God says, let us be reasonable here. And God is going to state the facts that to follow him is to find blessing and joy, that to reject him is to invite judgment and sorrow. So be reasonable, he says. Thus God will plead with them. And he says, I will plead with you. I'll grapple with you. I'll make my case before you. And I will plead with your children's children. 
I'll plead with multiple generations. I will call out to them if perchance they will hear me. And to serve the Lord and to bring about in that the blessing of obedience. So God pleads in verses 10 and 11. Pass over the isles of Chittim and see, send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing Hath the nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. This is fascinating. It's a fascinating mark of human, of, of human nature here. God is, is he's, he's reasoning with them. He's pleading with them. And here's his argument. He says, go all the way to the Isles of Chittim. That would be Italy, the islands surrounding Italy. Go that far west. He says, do you see the nations changing their gods? Do you see nations in a revolving door of gods moving from one to another all the time? Are not nations devoted to their gods, though their gods be no gods at all? Have you ever noticed this? That people rage against God, the true and living God, for all of his unkindness and for all of these things. His lack of blessing, his general disinterest, whatever it might be, and then they switch to some idol whose doings are nothing more than the fancies of their own imagination. And then they feverishly defend that idol as if that idol is worth defending. Have you ever noticed that pagan gods aren't very, the, 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 the people that worship pagan gods, they're not very flighty. <laughs> they, they stick to their gods. Their gods do nothing for them. They're stone. People worship the sun and yet they'll defend their worship. People who worship their gods of stone, yet they'll defend their gods. They'll defend them to the death. Wars have been started over false gods. He says, God says, go all around this world and look at these pagans and notice how devoted they are to their gods, which are no gods. These gods that have never done a thing for them. When famine and pestilence comes, they slit their wrists and they sacrifice their children and they do all of these things until things turn out. But you know what they never do? They never turn their back on their gods. And God says, yet you, who serve the true and the living God, who serve the God who is faithful, who serve the God who has never failed at a promise, yet you turn away. Yet you turn to these gods that are not gods. What a fascinating thing. He says, my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit they have set aside the only thing that is truly glorious about them, which is their relationship with the Lord, for that which is useless and profitless. And this is devastating. Astonishing, as the Lord will call it. That's what he says in verses 12 and 13. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's going to get good. Stay with me here. God speaks to the heavens. He appeals to the heavens. That would be the whole of the, of, of the spirit realm that is watching, that is considering. We find such appeals come up at other points in scriptures, usually appealing to both heaven and earth, however to testify or to hear. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1, we see one. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So we find here this call for the heavens and the earth to consider. We find a similar call in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Calling for the heavens and the earth to hear and to, to, to witness the call of the Lord. In this case, he just says to the heavens. And notice he's not telling the heavens to hear. He says, O heavens, be astonished. Be horribly afraid. Be desolate. Why? Why only the heavens? Well, it's the unseen world that knows the power of God. It's the unseen world that knows that those pieces of stone that they have defected to are nothing but pieces of stone. It is the unseen world that sits in the heaven and marvels when God's people who have tapped into the very power of God forsake that God for the things of this earth. Can you imagine what the angels must think? Even the demons. Can you imagine what the devils must think when a Holy Spirit indwelled believer of the Lord Jesus Christ in this church age chooses rather to live in the squalor of sin? Can you imagine what must be going through their minds when we've traded the riches of the king for the rags and the poverty of the pauper? God says, be astonished, O heavens, that the very people whose glory is the Lord have forsaken their own glory for that which does not profit. And he says, there have been two evils committed by my people. First, they have forsaken me, and he calls himself the fountains of living water. We'll get back to this. He says, second, not only have they forsaken the fountain of living waters, but then they've hewed cisterns broken cisterns. They hold no water. And here God describes the very essence of idolatry. We have two pictures here. The first picture is the Lord is a fountain of living water. This imagery is seen later in the book. Again, it's also seen in John chapter 4 when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. We'll be going there. The ideas of a freshwater spring a spring is a place where water flows from an aquifer below the earth. And it flows up to the surface and it creates a pool above the earth's surface. Because of this flow from this aquifer that's underneath the earth, springs are fresh, they are clean. In order for the water to get down there, it has to go through a, a process of going through rocks and minerals and whatnot, which actually pulls out the impurities. So the water in these aquifers is, is very pure. And then as it comes up to the surface, it's clean. We have two lakes in Buffalo. We have Buffalo Lake and we have Pulaski Lake. Buffalo Lake is a feeder lake. It, it gets the runoff from including Pulaski, all of the lakes, and it, it just becomes that feed. Pulaski is a spring-fed lake. If you go and you compare the two lakes, you'll find that Buffalo Lake, especially as you get toward July and August, gets a little bit muddy, it's very stagnant, it gets very smelly, especially on these hot weeks. It's a very smelly lake. You go up to Pulaski and you won't ever smell that because Pulaski is being refreshed. Pulaski is cleaner. It's a spring-fed lake. The Lord likens himself to this fountain of living water. It's constantly being renewed. Good for all manner of uses as a water source. 
The Lord, in the Lord is life and health. Through the Lord is a constant daily renewal, joy, and deep satisfaction. His is a well that does not run dry. A cistern has to be refilled by something, doesn't it? Rainwater, generally speaking. An aquifer system, perhaps. But cisterns have to be filled up by something external. Springs don't have to be refilled. Springs are being filled from underneath. They're being constantly renewed. His is a well that does not run dry. It's constantly renewed as we draw from it. So that every moment of every day, as I drink from the fountain of living waters, I return to find something fresh and new and and refreshing and clean. And this is our Lord, our fountain of living waters. God says that they, the very people, had forsaken the fountain of living waters and they had hewed for themselves a cistern. And he calls it, in their case, a broken cistern. The idea of the broken cistern is what God uses to picture idolatry. A cistern is a man-made reservoir and it's made to hold water. It's built to catch and store typically rainwater and it's made with some sort of waterproof lining so that the water's not going to soak in, whether it's made of stone or whether it's hewn and then there's, a, there's an outer layer put onto it or whatever the case may be. It is made to hold water, but it has to be created to do so. It does not have an internal source. It must be filled by something external. More than this, the water in it sits. And so if it doesn't get used quickly it quickly becomes stagnant. It does not refill on its own. It must be refilled. And on top of this, God says, their cistern was a broken cistern. A broken cistern, cisterns having to have some manner of waterproofing. If that waterproofing fails, the water begins to leak. If there's a crack, if there's a rupture, the water pours out. And because it must be filled from an external source... It will not replenish on its own. To this end, as God describes his people, not only have they forsaken the the spring, the fountain of living water, where they could get this constant renewal, but their cistern that they hewed is a broken cistern. The water would be stagnant anyway would have to be refilled from some external source anyway. But worse than that, it's broken. It's not bringing them any satisfaction. It's empty because it has no capacity to hold anything. Even the inferior, uh, the inferior satisfaction that they might seek from external stimulus. And so God proves this analogy as he continues here. We're going to come back to this. Verses 14 through 16. He says, Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Noph and Tahapanes, there we go, have broken the crown of thy head. God says, Israel's not a servant. I did not create Israel, form Israel as a servant. I did not form Israel as home-born slaves. 
And if Israel is not by its nature a servant, and it's not by its nature a homeborn slave, then how did it get spoiled? And by spoiled meaning plundered. How did it get plundered? Israel is a free nation, the firstborn of the Lord, the Lord's chosen people. How did he get plundered then? Babylon is often seen in prophecy, particularly the prophecies of Daniel, as a lion. Young lions are spoken of as that which have strength and authority here. God says here that the lions came and ravaged them. The powerful of the earth roared upon them and destroyed them. God says this is not supposed to happen, is it? It's not supposed to happen that Israel is supposed to be plundered. It's not supposed to happen that Israel is to be destroyed. It's not supposed to happen that Israel will be left wanting. It's not supposed to happen that Israel would even have to defend itself. So what happened here? He says not only did the lions roar against them, but also Noph and Tehopanes, that would be Egypt, the realm of Egypt, has broken the crown of thy head. They've broken your kings. We find that Egypt will begin deposing and adding their own kings in the subsequent kings here and not, not too many years after this. Egypt is kind of using Israel as a vassal state. And then eventually Babylon will treat Israel in that same way. And God pleads with them. He contends with them. He reasons with them. Has anyone, has any priest, has any pastor, has any prophet, has anyone stopped to wonder why Israel has been broken? Has anyone stopped to wonder why Israel has been plundered? If they are followers of the true and living God, if God is their God, then why in any context would any nation have power over them? It's unthinkable. It's impossible unless they've rejected their God. See, God is reasoning with them here, is He not? And His argument is very reasonable. He continues in verses 17 and 18. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when He led thee by the way? That's the Lord's answer. You've done this to yourself. And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt, to drink in the waters of Sihor? And what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? He's coming back to his cistern. This is the cistern uh, picture again. He says, you've done this to yourself. By forsaking the Lord, you've forsaken your own protection. By forsaking the Lord, you've forsaken your own blessing. Going back to the analogy of the waters, he says, they have sought to bring waters of Egypt. What for? You've been trying to fill your broken cistern with the waters of Egypt, and it hasn't worked. Then he says, you've sought to the waters of Assyria. You, you went to Assyria and you brought waters back from Assyria to try to fill your broken, your, your broken cistern. You have brought the gods of Egypt. See, they served the gods of the land. It wasn't working. So they brought back the waters from Egypt. Let's assume the idols of Egypt. It didn't work. How about the ones of Assyria? It didn't work. They've been filling their cistern, but their cistern is broken. It's not working. And all the while... There's a fountain of living waters in their very land that they've rejected. God says, does any of this sound reasonable to you? Does any of this sound logical to you? Does any of this sound right to you? He's pleading with them. And so God tells them in verse 19, our final verse before we apply. He says, thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter 
that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. God tells them, your wickedness will correct you. Your own wickedness will bring about the consequences that will be your correction. Your own backsliding will be your reproof. They are an unhappy people. They are a people lacking in blessing and protection. They are a people under threat from within and from without. And all of these are rebukes brought upon them by their own sin because they'd forsaken the Lord and because they did not fear Him. So God says, your consequences will be your own. What you have chosen, because you have chosen to forsake the fountain of living waters. And this is where our application is going to be. It basically jumps off the page, so we just have to go there. Let's organize it together with some clearly established thoughts. As we consider this concept of living waters, our, point, our first point is this. Living water is accessed by faith alone. God uses an analogy of here, uh, here which should be very familiar to us if you're familiar with the Gospels because it's found in John 4. Jesus is on his way up to Galilee and the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. And while in this region, the disciples go off to buy food and Jesus sits and he rests by a well. And a woman of Samaria comes to that well, and the Bible says it was the sixth hour of the day. Women did not go to the well in the sixth hour of the day. That would be high noon. It's a hot day today. High noon would not be the time to be out doing your chores. The women would not go to the well at the sixth hour of the day. But this woman went to the well at the sixth hour of the day. And as she came to the well at the sixth hour of the day, Jesus was there. And Jesus looks at this woman and he asks her a question. We read, beginning in verse 7 of John 4. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We've taught on this before, recognizing the prejudices of the day. The Samaritans were people that were despised of the Jews. The Jews saw them as less than human, uh, very bigoted and prejudiced against the Samaritans. And of course, the Samaritans hated the Jews, and for good reason. They both hated each other for fairly good reason. There was a history there of destroying each other and uh, destroying temples and such. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith, unto, saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would give thee, have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank there of himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Life eternal, yes, but also life abundant. Life eternal to the unbelievers here today, to those of us who have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Life eternal is found only in Jesus Christ. But take note, believer, that life abundant is only found in those living waters as well. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The legacy of everything in this world that claims to satisfy is that it fails miserably of abundance. Be it money, be it fame, be it accomplishment, be it amusements, be it affections, be it relationships, be it emotional connections, they all fall short of abundance and satisfaction. They are all things which fill a cistern. And maybe in some lives that cistern even holds. Can we, can we stick to our analogy here? There are some people that find a manner of satisfaction in the things of this life. Their cistern is actually holding that water. People drink from the cistern and they, they, they can drink of that. So that cistern may be their family or it may be money or, or maybe whatever it is. And they go to that cistern and they drink from that cistern and they say, I am quenched. They walk away from the cistern of money and their, their, their thirst is quenched. They walk away from the cistern of materialism. They bought that new thing and that, that thirst is quenched for a time. But here's the problem. The thirst keeps coming back. And they have to keep coming back to the cistern. And that cistern gets stagnant over time. And it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. If you've ever read up on wealthy people, as they're gaining their wealth, they're drinking from that cistern of wealth. That cistern satisfies. And then they need something new, and they get it. And something new, and they get it. till they've got everything they want. And then they're just pursuing money. And at some point, that cistern, the water of that cistern, doesn't even satisfy anymore. It's stagnant. From the beginning, they always had to fill that cistern with something external. It was never something inside out. It's always been outside in. And at some point, it just doesn't satisfy any longer. And they become unsatisfied and they become unfulfilled. And this can lead to all manner of things, right? Often the things which once satisfied simply won't anymore because the cistern becomes so stagnant. You need something new. You need something better. The cistern doesn't fill as fast. The water is more stagnant than usual. Or maybe, just maybe, you come to the point where your cistern just breaks and it just doesn't satisfy anymore. There's nothing left of satisfaction in it. I get to meet a lot of these people at the jail. They've been filling that cistern for years with drugs or alcohol or, or immoral relationships and they come to the point where their cistern just breaks. None of it matters anymore. It just doesn't satisfy. And now they're just sad because everything that once satisfied doesn't, it, was, it was only tendential anyway. They had to keep coming back to it, which is why they got themselves into trouble. And now none of it satisfies and they don't know what to do because they can't even find satisfaction in the very thing that they keep running back to. The cistern broke. For others, the cistern has been noticeably broken for some time. It's absolutely clear that the things in life simply don't satisfy. Anytime they seek to fill up the cup of their satisfaction with something from this earth, it just pours right back out. It falls right through the bottom. Their cistern is broken. It holds no water. 
enter Jesus Christ who says that the water which he gives will satisfy every time. That the water is fresh, that it is clean, that it is constantly being renewed, and that it's renewed from the inside out, not the outside in. It doesn't need external stimulus to fill it up. It fills up from the inside. It fills up from itself. It is abundant and self-replenishing. The effects don't dull. They're always fresh. The water is never stagnant. It's not sitting, pooling. It's always satisfying. And more than this, if we will but ask him, he will not just give us a drink from the well of living waters, from the fountain. He will give us the spring itself. He will place the very spring inside of us. Instead of having to be filled from the outside with some external stimulus and having to be filled over and over and over again, we can be filled from the inside out, an internal stimulus which can satisfy perpetually without the externalities. This is the promise that begins with salvation from sin. And we lack this spring because we lack a personal relationship with Jesus. And we lack a personal relationship with Jesus, with God, because we are sinners. And God cannot have fellowship with sin. And so because we are sinners, we are alienated from the spring of living water, from the fountains of living water. Our sin has separated us from the very essence of life. And because our sin has separated us, because we are sinners, not only are we separated in this life, but we must be separated for eternity in a place of eternal conscious torment called hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's one chapter previous, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And now Jesus comes to this woman and if we were to continue to study this woman, we would find that she says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet because of the things that he said. And he says, and she says, Go, excuse me, he says to her, Go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, You're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. And as we link this to Jesus' statement, here's what had been happening. This woman had been going from man to man to man looking for satisfaction, drinking from the cistern of these men, looking for whatever it might have been, security or comfort or attention or whatever it was that, that, that this woman was looking for in these men. And she would drink from the cistern of one man until that man got pretty stagnant. And then she'd get bored and she'd head out or maybe he'd leave, whatever it was, she had to find another one and another one and another one and another one five times and now she's with another. She's drinking from her sixth cistern and they are not satisfying. It does not satisfy. And Jesus says, I'm offering you the well. If you are in here today and you've never received the well of living waters, you have never come to the point in your life where you've recognized that you are a sinner and that you are separated from God, that your sin is what has separated from you. And look, you cannot get yourself to him. 
You cannot implant within you the spring of living waters. You cannot get to him on your own. You can't earn your way to him. You've already fallen short. You've already dug yourself too deep in the hole. You can't climb out of it. And even if you could start climbing, you're digging it deeper every day. But that's okay because the good news is you don't have to dig yourself out of the hole. You cannot be worthy of salvation. You cannot be worthy of Christ. You cannot make yourself worthy of Christ. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But Jesus has already paid the price. For Jesus being the perfect man, the one who had never sinned, who is God in flesh. The Bible says he lived a perfect life and at the end of that perfect life he died a sinner's death. And on the cross the Bible says that the Father made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus Christ took the punishment, the wrath of God for our sin and that in doing so he made the way, he paved the way for us to receive the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus proposed an exchange, that he pays for our sin, and that we are clothed in his righteousness. So that as we stand before God, we are righteous, we are sinless in God's eyes. Not because of our own effort, not because of our own merit, not because of our own worth, not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but only because we have accepted the reality that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But of course it would not be enough that Jesus would die. The Bible says he was buried and three days later he rose again from the grave. And that he rose again victorious from the grave, number one, he validated that what he said is true. If a guy rises from the dead, I'm going to believe what he says. Number two, in Jesus' resurrection, we find God the Father validating his ministry, that God has accepted his sacrifice. And number three, we find the promise that because he lives, so too can we. That the power of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead can give us power over our sin. It is that Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead that is implanted within us that becomes the spring of living waters. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you do not have the spring of living waters within you, nothing else can and ever will satisfy. Nothing else can bring you to God. Would you accept the gospel today? Would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved today? For those of you that accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the spring. It's yours. It's there. The spring of living water is inside of you. The question for you is this. Number two, you have the spring. Are you drinking from a cistern? Have you ever noticed how many believers fundamentally lack satisfaction? It's what we talked about this morning with Laodicea. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, but they did not know that they were poor, that they were wretched, that they were miserable, that they were blind, that they were naked. Have you ever observed how many believers run to the same things as the unbeliever to fill the void? You're frustrated and the only thing that makes you feel better is to go somewhere and spend some money on something. I just need to go shopping. I just need to spend time with so-and-so. We run to any number of things to refill the cistern of our satisfaction. Maybe it's spending money. Maybe it's earning money. Maybe it's video games or movies. Various other amusements. Maybe it's some material thing that we need to renew. 
Maybe it's a medication to dull our feelings and our frustrations, to cure our anxieties. Maybe it's the gym where we go to release the pressures and to refill the cistern, reinvigorate. It might even be religious things, folks. There's many a Christian that refills the cistern of their lives with religious externalities. That they go and they do something to refill the cistern some religious activity to refill the cistern. And if they're not close enough to religious activities, if they haven't gone to a Christian concert soon enough or a Christian conference uh, in enough time, then they, then, then they lose their satisfaction. Does this sound to anyone else like Christians are really busy in our lives filling up cisterns from external sources rather than drinking from the spring that is within. Does this sound to anyone else like a Christianity that has forsaken the fountain of living waters and has hewed out for themselves cisterns? And for some, those cisterns hold waters. For others, they simply don't. But if we are people who run day after day to the same solutions to the same cisterns as the world around us to seek peace and satisfaction and joy, there's something wrong. These things ought not be so. If we need social media to validate us, if we need amusements to encourage us, if we need shopping to reset us, there's something wrong. When all of these things, these validations, these encouragements, these, uh, these things in our lives the joys, these things ought to bubble up from inside of us, from the spring of living water which was given to us at the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. He is enough and He ought to be enough. But maybe it is that we, like Laodicea, we spoke of this morning, don't know how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked we really are. So we fill up our cisterns, secular things or religious things. We go to church and we give and we meet with friends and we hear good music and we leave generally filled and we read good Christian books and we listen to Christian music and all of this is good. All this is, this is good stuff. But let us never confuse the content with the source. Not if these practices are being used to fill a cistern we've made for ourselves rather than to lead us back to the well of living waters. Religion is not intended to be the source of anything in our lives. It is intended to be the framework that guides us to the spring of living waters. If religion becomes a cistern that we fill up with externalities in order to feel good about ourselves, in order to find satisfaction, we've confused the content and the source. Our satisfaction and our contentment is rooted too much in what we are doing rather than who God is and rather than what He has done for us. And if we can't keep refilling that cistern with the next Christian thing, then we dry up. Now again, I'm not saying that church or good literature or good music or service or others is not a good thing. And I'm not saying that these things don't invigorate, because they do. But the invigoration that comes from any of these things should come from you being led back to the spring of living water, not from you drinking out of the cistern. May I put it this way? Rich people have figured out that philanthropy makes them happy. 
And so you have rich people in every context that have set up foundations to give heaps and heaps of money to good causes, right? Christians know that giving makes you happy. And so Christians statistically are the most generous people in any culture. It's the same thing, right? Wrong. Shouldn't be. The rich person gives drinking out of the cistern that they filled for themselves. They have filled a cistern. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And they fill that cistern with the externalities of their money so that they may drink from it as they give and find some satisfaction. The Christian, as he gives, gives not grudgingly or of necessity, but as unto the Lord, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the blessing is not in the gift. Did you know that the blessing of giving is not the smile on the child's face? That's not the true blessing of giving. The blessing of giving is not actually the thank you card that you get from the missionary. These, these are, if, if this is what satisfies, then you've got a cistern that you've been filling. The blessing of giving, whether you get a card or not, whether the child smiles or not, whether you get a thank you or not, the blessing of giving is that, God, I have just served you. I have given, not grudgingly or of necessity, as unto the Lord, to bless someone else. I have just served the Lord. And, it re- and that's when you drink out of the, living, the, the, out of the spring of living waters. You have just drank of the Lord. Can you see how the cistern can become a counterfeit spring? And how easily our motivations can be confused to where we as Christians, in the name of God, begin drinking out of a stagnant cistern? And you know what's the worst part about it? The worst part about it is that we begin drinking out of the cistern and we don't even know what we're missing. We've forgotten what the spring tastes like and we think that the cistern is actually good. Have you ever done this before? Where perhaps uh, you've... you've uh, um, switch to a different, I don't know, a different brand of some condiment or, or, or you've, you've uh, in order to save some expenses, you've, you've lowered the quality of something. I remember when I went to college, uh, every morning I'd eat a banana. And the problem is in a college setting where it's a buffet, they buy their bananas and they're like green, right? Green, green bananas. And then they put them out and they're still green, green bananas because they don't want them to go bad. And so I ate a green banana every morning for months, like crunch, crunch, crunch. I mean, we're talking some crunchy bananas here. And then I get home and I take a bite of a, of a banana that's ripe and I say, what is this thing? This last Thanksgiving, the Rogers were over at our house. I smoked a turkey. Take a bite and they said, what is this? I said, it's turkey. But they never had a turkey that good before. Wouldn't you know it? It's the same thing. You just didn't know it could be that good. I hated turkey all growing up until my dad got a smoker and then all of a sudden I realized turkey could be good because it doesn't have to be dry and like actually suck the moisture out of your mouth, right? It doesn't have to do that. I don't have to literally bathe it in gravy in order for it to taste good if it's prepared properly. Christian, here's what I'm telling you with all of these silly anecdotes. If you're drinking from the cistern, not only are you drinking from, are, are, you, are you getting minimal satisfaction and a satisfaction that cannot be renewed day by day, but you're not even getting the good stuff. You're not even tasting the good water. You're getting the stagnant stuff. 
not the renewed, clean, fresh, crisp water. You're getting the stagnant water, the water that's been sitting there and got a little mildew on the top. That's what you're drinking. And if you've been away from the living water long enough, you may not even know it. Just how inferior it is. And the worst part about it is that the spring of living water is still there inside of you as you drink from this cistern. Don't confuse the content with the source. Are you drinking daily from the spring or are you drinking from a cistern? Are you refilling yourself and then looking for in the actual religious elements the satisfaction or is the, the blessing of the religion that we do actually the satisfaction that comes from serving the Lord? Are the religious things that you're doing drawing you unto the Lord to draw from the well of living waters or are they attempting to be a cistern in and of themselves or have you made them a cistern in and of themselves? There is a big difference. There's a big difference and you'll know it when you experience it and you'll never want to go back. Third point. If God has not moved, who has moved? If God is true, what else can satisfy? If we are gods, why are we spoiled? The point this evening is this. If you aren't satisfied and you are in Christ. As we said this morning, well, we know God hasn't moved, right? So if you're not finding satisfaction, where have you gone? What has moved you? When are you going to come back? God said to the church of Laodicea this morning, be zealous therefore and repent. God said to the church of Ephesus, Repent and do the first works. If God is true, and we all know God is true, if God says only He can satisfy, if God says that only He is enough, if God says no one else and there is none else like Him, if God says those gods are no gods, then why are we trying? What are we doing? What are we aiming for? What are we expecting? What are you expecting from whatever it is that you're filling that cistern with? Are you truly expecting it to satisfy when the God of all flesh, the very one who made you, says they can't? Are you truly expecting a fulfillment from that which God says cannot fulfill? Or are we just fooling ourselves here? If we are God's people, then why would we be spoiled, plundered? Why would we be ineffective how could we possibly be ineffective? How could we possibly be spiritually ineffective if the Spirit of God that raised Jesus up from the dead lives inside of us? How is that possible? How is it possible that we could be weak if the Spirit of God lives inside of us? How is it possible that we could be anxious and fearful and sorrowful if the Spirit of the living God, who is life and joy and peace, is inside of us? It's because we're drinking from a cistern and we're forsaking the living waters. But the Spirit of God yet exists to reveal things unto us. What does it reveal to you this evening? How are you doing this evening? Where do you stand this evening? Are you drinking from the spring, the fountain of living waters? 
Or have you hewn for yourself a cistern? And maybe it's pretty much convinced you that you're satisfied. Maybe it's holding water and you're drinking from it. But it's not the living waters. Are you struggling to be renewed day by day? If so, there's something wrong. Are the things that you're doing for the Lord, reading your Bible every day, prayer every day, memorizing scripture, going to church, are they not satisfying? Are you not finding in them true satisfaction? Maybe it's that you're treating them as a cistern instead of allowing them to direct you unto the fountain. They are not going to satisfy in themselves. They are only as satisfactory as the degree to which they draw you to the fountain of living waters to drink of that well. How are you doing this evening? Do you have the spring of living water inside you, young people in particular? Are you drinking from that spring or have you hewed a cistern? Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.